Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University. How you doing, James? Just brilliant. I'm a, a sunny, happy man making my way through a just world uh, under reasonable circumstances. You have uh, just come back from the SIPS conference, which is the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. And there was a lot of talk on Twitter about this conference. So, how was it? Yeah, good. It was good. <laughs> what, what, what is the conference about? Because it isn't like traditional conferences. It's about, it's about improving psychological science, Daniel. Well, well that's clear. But how, how is it different from other more traditional um, old white men patting themselves on the back type conferences? Oh, that's- no, look, it wouldn't- it would be untrue to say there were no old white men. There were at, at least three. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a- or anyone who considers himself old or is, is feeling old on the, the receipt of this podcast, feel, feel free to tag yourself in. Still haven't managed to figure out who our oldest listener is, by the way. As people say, oh, I've heard five episodes. I don't know if that counts. I will- I really want to know. Didn't, didn't I'd Dorothy like the, self-nominate? I'd love to see the histogram. Um, yeah, but I don't know how many episodes she's listened to. I mean, look, let's let's face it. Over long periods of time, your personal attributes are tiring, and <laughs> people who are people who are busy might not have the kind of wherewithal to be able to put up with hours and hours of your cackling bilge. <laughs> So, it's it's just sort of, it's difficult, I suppose, when you reach a certain career stage to, to put up with a marmot like you. So, <laughs> yeah, I, he, I, yeah, here you are, 64 episodes in. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's the, the hypocrisy is just rampant. <laughs> um, sorry, what was the question? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mildly fatigued, Daniel. I'm uh, reminded as well that in the, the last episode that we did, I, I made fun of mourning people quite a lot, actually. I think I said something quite caustic, like um, they're from a different species, I believe. They're um, genetic hangover from our previous alien overlords. And... In the interim between then and now, I have had to make the adjustment to being a morning person. And as it is currently the morning, um, I, I can honestly say I don't feel part lizard yet, which is tremendously disappointing. And um, I'm tired all the time. My body just does not want to do this. So, you'll have to forgive me if I'm a little bit distracted. More than usual, at least. <laughs> what was the question? Sip, sips. So it's it's kind of described as an unconference. So for but how's it different than than the sort of the typical ones that you go to? Well, there are only formal talks for the most part. There are a few workshops at the start, which are more traditional in the conferency sense. Um, I gave one with uh, Nick and Michelle, both who have been guests in our previous episodes for a variety of reasons, mainly because they're both adorable. Um, and some science things as well, probably. Um, there are workshops at the start and then the rest of it is substantially more free form. 
topics are set and worked on and have a, a, a general nexus around, I suppose, various open science practices, um, inclusivity, um, improving systems, metrics. Uh, so a bunch of things, a bunch of things came out of it um, with uh, Neil and Patrick, both of whom probably don't listen to our show because they're sensible gentlemen with lives. Um, I spent a lot of time in the sort of how to get used to the idea of being a scientist in the media perspective on things. Uh, we had an impromptu podcast session right at the end. I saw that. Um, which was very, I tried to record that, but we had only the uh, rudimentary equipment and everyone was absolutely burned to shreds at that point. But we managed to get, um, black goat people and the four beers guys in a room with me to talk about podcasting. And there's also Sam and Sophia who are starting their own podcast. In fact, have, I shouldn't say, are going to because they already have. Reproducibility. So, reproducibility. I'm going to be preferentially pronouncing that reproducibility because it sounds like that's something a young person would say and I'm desperately feeling my age at this point, which means, I don't know, seven podcasters in a room at once sort of talking about the mechanics of it. I tried to record it. Um, it wasn't really a planned thing. Um, then again, I'm not exactly known for my fucking planning, am I? So, it is much more similar to a mathematics conference than anything else. And um, I heard a, a, a few people uh, saying at some point, oh, no one's ever thought of having a conference like this before. And, yeah, you don't know any mathematicians, dude. Um, mathematicians often work at conferences, you know, they go to a conference, there's some talks, et cetera, et cetera, but then someone says something and you're like, can we sit down for a while and actually work on that? So they sit around and do maths, certain types, obviously we don't need to go into the category distinctions, but yeah, working at a conference is, is good and it validates my opinion that this is a much better idea and all the times in the past where I've said to someone, you know, oh, like, oh we had trouble processing that data. I go, well, I've got my computer. We can actually do work now. As long as I don't want you to write me into the paper or anything, but you've just mentioned you have a computational problem. We can probably solve that quickly. And as you'd be aware, Daniel, a lot of problems, if you know what you're doing in biopsych especially, uh, Knowledge gap is really the problem. They're not computationally difficult to solve. So, I've said to people, hey, we can solve that problem right now. Why don't you uh, come and meet me in the cafe and we'll, we'll, we'll get all squizzy on blonde roast and we'll see if we can solve your problem. And people look at me uh, as if I've grown a third head to go with my existing two heads and the third head is now the one that's speaking. So, the, the idea that you can go somewhere and uh, actually work is a huge uh, improvement over the idea that you can go somewhere and listen to someone express their authority and uh, have the conference pay for them to generally extend how much they get to promulgate their awful old person shit as much as humanly possible. 
So that aspect of it, I particularly enjoy. But also because the simple, the simple reason everyone says, "Oh, the real conference is at the bar, mate." It was all bar. Um, I, <laughs> I did, I did inquire about the, the the possibility of drinking during sessions, and I was not met with the phrase. No, that would be unnecessary or inappropriate. It was more sort of, yeah, that could probably work. Maybe it will inspire a frank exchange of opinions. And I thought that's the best fucking response I'm ever going to hear to this. The only problem was I couldn't find a bottle store anywhere near where the conference was going on. I didn't want to leave because I was working. So, it had to take a back seat. I had to survive on awful conference coffee. Well, um, next next sips needs to be a next ne- next to be near a, a bottle shop. Then it, it even has a kind of imbibing flavored name, and obviously, you know, this is <laughs> we, this was in Grand Rapids. Now, Grand Rapids, if you're a beer drinker, Grand Rapids is pretty famous because um, within sort of stone's throw of the actual conference center, there is uh, Founders Brewing, which is very famous, New Holland Brewing, which is also very famous. Uh, and a bar called Hopcat, who are a little chain. I think they started in Grand Rapids. I'm not 100% sure, but it's widely regarded as one of the best beer bars in the country. And because Americans are hopeless drunks and tragic for anything that can be added up and put in order, they take that thing kind of seriously. So I got to go to all of those during the conference and not simply sit there and uh, drink beer like a weirdo. I actually managed to use all of the time. Um, if you're part of a community of people who are interested in open science, though, I can't recommend this enough for a variety of reasons. And it's literally impossible for me to try and like call out the amount of people I either met for the first time or met because I'd seen them on Twitter. And an awful lot of our listeners were at this conference. Um, I think I, I tried to keep a count, but I was just getting real grayed out by the end. Um, maybe somewhere between sort of 15 and 20 people went, you're that guy, you're that idiot from the internet. Ah, which one are you? Ah, yeah. Um, you're the, you're the, the sensible one that that (laughs) deals with the, 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 the socialist weirdo who, who lives in the sea. It's, that's, that's, it's nice to meet you. (laughs) <laughs> I, I like your podcast. My favorite episodes are the ones where you you're talk. tired at seven in the morning. <laughs> My favorite episodes are the ones where you're quiet. Um, so, look, this is not a – it's not a normal conference in the best possible way. That's the easiest way that I can sum it up. There's probably a, a lot of – other things that can be done with it as well for the simple reason that it's deliberately designed to be flexible. So, uh, people are chatting seven shades of shit right now. What should we preferentially have next year? What worked and didn't? And it's going into an open forum where people are going, yeah, we could add that, we can take that out, we can poke that with a spoon, etc. So, I mean, it's kind of meta open in the sense that you're allowed to change what it is when you're there. And make your own determination about what is or is not good to work on slash network about, a word everyone would be aware now that I fucking loathe. Um, and what should happen to it in the future? In what way should it proceed? So, that's an unusual conference. 
um, it will result hopefully in a bunch of like how over I mean, we'll find out how effective it is in sort of six to nine months as all the things that people have started and talked about are projects that come to fruition. Like a baby. Any- yes, Dan, like a baby. Everything is exactly like a baby at all points <laughs> in time. Um, so, we will see where that goes. Um, anyone who's been in sort of method reform, open science, etc., for more than about 20 seconds will be well aware of the fact that uh, experiences like this is, is, is a, a good lived example of the principle of talk is cheap. So, okay, the talking has been achieved. The hangovers are now eventually somewhat resolved. What do we proceed to? And, you know, in a sane world, we would proceed to all the lofty ambitions that we have set ourselves. So, if that happens, uh, it works and it's awesome. If that doesn't happen, then shit, we had a good time. And ne- next year's in uh, Rotterdam. Yes, Europe. I might actually head down to that one. It'll be uh, it'll be nice and close. I to believe me. it's pronounced Europe now, and Rotterdam. I can never avoid uh, thinking of Rotterdam as anything but the the home of viciously ridiculous electronic music in the mid '90s. So I assume other things have happened there since then. I'm just not a hundred percent aware of what they are. Your head across. If you're from if you're from Rotterdam, I'm not making fun of your city. I just don't know anything about it. So, oh, the next conference is in Lagos, Nigeria. Well, well my 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 uh, my baseline knowledge of this place is quite low. That's all I'm saying. I don't know what the fuck's going on there, but it seems like a good opportunity to find out. And you know, here's a, here's I do have some advice for you if you're a student who's going. You're trying to get someone else to pay for this. Try to take your conference experience that someone else has paid for and in the eyes of the people who paid for it, tie it back to some kind of tangible academic outcome so you can point at it and say, see, I went to do the thing and I was only gone three days rather than a much longer conference, which you'll be aware is longer than three days. And then say, look at all the fantastic things I did that proceeded from this academic event. Pay for me to go again, dickface. No, don't phrase it like that. That would be a disaster. Um, just try to t- sell it to the people who are around you in terms of what you actually managed to do. You've got a collaboration for Christ's sake, follow up on it. And write to me personally. I, I like that shit. I'm, I'm never uh, – people are occasionally reticent. Two people told me that I was scary on Twitter. <laughs> oh, I think they met you in person. Well, they did meet me in person, Dan. That's when they told me. Yeah, but then, but then that would have changed their mind that you just uh, basically. Just well, a, I hope a, I changed their mind. But I didn't, no one understands I, this. No one understands that I'm, I'm sort of. You have to imagine me laughing while I'm writing things down. But it probably makes some somewhat more sense now to everyone else. But you know, that's a that's a, a reasonable kind of uh, rambling outline. And now I'm back. Uh, Retaining water like I'm eight months pregnant and with my entire life feeling hungover and uh, generally generally feeling like the, the bottom of a parrot's cage, but but in a fun way. Was there any uh, any projects there or anything that was proposed that uh, impressed you or that sort of stuck with you? 
I thought there was one particularly good idea they threw up at the end. Um, when you search for a identifiable academic object in Google Scholar, um, they tried to get some form of petition together to ask Google, can we display commentaries and replications on these specific articles in the Google Scholar search drop thing? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you're going through classic literature, oh, look at that. It's a dickhead and Whiteson, 1974. I wonder if that's ever been replicated. Um, you could tell from a glance. This is the, this is what proceeded directly from, this is what proceeded directly from this paper. These are the, the kind of eventual research outcomes. Was it confirmed or disconfirmed? Um, seems pretty reasonable. The other, the knock on effect that that would have is it would hugely increase the global visibility of replications. Mm. Um, I think your, I don't know if they'll go for it, but I really like the idea. I don't know if Google will go for it because I don't know how hard that would be to automate. I don't think they're very interested in systems that they can't sort of clickety fuck, let's go, you know, something that's totally scalable. I don't know what it adds to their thing. It would be a great service for people who directly replicate stuff for sure. Good. Um, but it doesn't represent value to the company. They're a private company with uh, shareholders and teeth and whatnot. But I mean, if, so it's, if um, they can, if they can get that done, though, that's attached a- to, uh, to replications. If there's metadata, well, yeah, like imagine, some- imagine, imagine the search in the Google Scholars come up. Let's 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 do one now. Pick one of your filthy papers. <laughs> um, Preferably I'd- one that you are central to because you're such a wonderful person. Do oh, um, just just go to my Google Scholar profile and pick pick the graph. Pick our graph paper. All right. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. <sighs> Okay, so it comes up here. Here it is. HTML, translational psychiatry, bloody fuck. You, Gail, me. Uh, there's a little star for save, and there's a little doodads, the fucking, what are they called? Quotation. Dan, help, help. Thank you. Quotation marks, right, which is where you get the citation to copy. Then it says, cited by 44, related articles, all 11 versions. Fuck only knows why there are 11 versions. But next to that... Commentaries, number, link. Replications, number, link. There's actually space on the page where all 11 versions stop and there's just sort of white space. Make it look a little busier, but what could you do? You could immediately find out what proceeded from that research. Was it kicked over? Did it enjoy a, uh, you know, did it enjoy a sound beating in the next five years or is it regarded as an important seminal result that we're not allowed to forget about because it's been essentially accurate from then to now? Cool idea. Mm. Yeah, if that takes off, if there is metadata um, associated within PubMed that it's replication, I'm not sure that exists. Um, no, neither neither am I. And determining something, determining something like that on the basis of uh, can I do it with my algorithm, I don't know the challenges of that. But I suspect they are not insubstantial. Yeah. Then again, then again, this if they want to do it and it's Google, 
if they want to do it and it's Google, you, you get to do it whatever the, however the hell you like. Um, one relatively easy way would be looking at the density of the citations of one thing versus something else over the space of the entire paper. You could, you could reasonably curate it. Cause if, if you, if you replicate something, you're going to refer to it in text a fucking million billion times, right? Mm. So, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's that. Um, there could also be structure between how something is cited and the rest of the citations, like how early on it is in the paper. I am spitballing here. There's a whole session on this that I didn't go to. So either someone who's smarter than me or has more familiarity with the area has all totally presupposed this. Um, there's a, a very small chance it's vaguely useful, but you know, people people listening haven't heard it. But it, look, the, the 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 details of this be what they may. That it is, yeah. it, um, is it might a, even be online. It is a, the summary of this. It probably blog. is. Do you have a favorite episode? Someone asked me that at Sips, and I realized I don't have a favorite episode. Generally, my favorite episode is the last one we recorded. Um, look, a, a few stand out in mind. Uh, I think for me, one of them that really stands out is um is the one with Chris, Chris Chambers. Um, mm. more in the sense that. It uh, offers a bit of a bit of hope for the for the, for the quagmire that psychology is in. Um, <laughs> hope, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hope. But no, it, it, it clearly offers offers solutions. Um, and it was one of those ones where I, I genuinely learnt a lot during the actual discussion. So for me, that's um, that's probably up there as uh, as as one of my favourites. Um, but um, yeah, but look. Anytime we get a guest on is really interesting because we get to we get to hear new ideas. Um, uh, you know, another question that was posed to me was, "Why do you have so many guests now?" As opposed to what, just us two yabbering on? Yes, as opposed uh, to the yabbering, Dan. The yabbering. Well, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a simple answer to that because I personally think they're interesting. <laughs> Added, you, you, look, you only know what you know. There's a whole wide world full of people, and the fact that there's only the two of us makes it reasonably easy to schedule guest episodes. Mm. If there were three or, God forbid, four of us trying to do a thing, it tricky. would be a shit show. But no, I, I think I'm actually quite happy with you know having sort of doing the odd episode, me and you, and then um, getting uh, getting more guests in. Um, we got the a we odd got- episode. Yeah, they are odd, aren't they? <laughs> we got it. We got a cracker of a guest lined up for our next one, um, which is do awesome. we? Yeah. Are you allowed to say who it is? Because I can't remember. Um, it's like ninety nine percent confirmed, but I'll, I'll I'll put it out there. Oh well, that's not a hundred percent, Daniel. Not not a hundred percent, but not that not a hundred percent. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, we've had some great suggestions online on Twitter for for, for people that we should uh, talk to as well. So we're we're slowly making our way through that list. Um, but um, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and um, answer a, a listener question that was um, that was posed to us. Um, let me let ago. me conclude this section with your marvelous quick break, sneaky there. Um, a lot of people who listen to this are from sips or around the community i saw some people i know who are uh listeners on twitter regretting the fact that they didn't go um i was somewhat reticent to go last year and didn't go um mainly because of time constraints but also partly because i am a 
resentful weirdo a lot of the time. Um, I'm very glad I went. I met a lot of people who I like and who do interesting work. And the normal kind of awkwardness and resentment of the incredibly structured and irritating nature of the conference process was really not present. I like the fact that it's an ECR-focused conference as well, um, probably why we have so much sort of listener crossover. But it w- it was an odd feeling like you there was a sense of community that I don't really experience at other conferences. And that's very valuable. Even if you go, know, oh, well, the outcomes could be better. Yeah, but stand, stand back a bit from what did we get done and just think, when's the last time you actually went to a conference and enjoyed the company of people who it felt like it was acceptable for you to meet and wanted to know who you were and realized that that is pretty fucking unusual. It happens only, apart from this, is the only other example that I can think of in really small areas of people who are really specialized in doing something. So anyone in the life science would be familiar with Gordon conferences, which are highly specialized, highly subsidized little topic area things. And when people go, there's often somewhere between sort of, I suppose, 40 to 100 attendees. And everyone in those little areas really enjoys those because they get to collectively discuss everything that they're interested in. They get to meet all the people that they know reputation-wise. And there is, again, a sense of community. It's only really possible to do in an area where people have kind of a a common goal. There's some kind of mutual respect rather than the normal hierarchical discussion of things. And look, that can be amazing. I've seen some really hilarious platform talks. I've seen some uh, some phenomenal people give them. Um, some that are really interesting. Um, I saw Carl Dyseroth speak at a physiology conference. That was, if you don't know who he is, then you're probably not in the life sciences in even the most cursory of regards, which is fine. You're not mandated to be. Um, I saw Fabrizio Benedetti speak about the placebo effect once. That was cool because I followed his research for a million years. Uh, I saw Amy Cuddy speak at APS and uh, I'd never, you know, everyone talks about her all the time. I'd never seen her up close before. That was, that was fascinating in its own right. Um, but in general, that's a, a, a conference is, uh, someone who is dressed better than you speaking about themselves for a long period of time. And if that is not your jam, and it's very obviously not mine, as um, as anyone who's taken part in the occasional joke about my resistance to authority online would obviously be fucking well aware of. Thank you so much for making me look good. Then, um, yeah, it's, it's worth, it's worth the time. And it's considering the kind of the casual and unfocused nature of it, I think it speaks very well to the nature of the conference that so many people flew in from elsewhere to do it. It's in the US, but it wasn't the local US conference. Obviously, it makes it a lot easier if it is. And some of these things are determined by access. There are an awful lot of people who flew the Atlantic or the Pacific to 
actually be in this space to talk about this thing. So if you get the chance to go, fucking go. If you really like us, and that obviously should be everyone because we're brilliant, the best thing that you can do to make sure that we thrive and whatever Z-grade notoriety we're collecting here is go to iTunes and leave a review that says we're friendly, pleasant, hygienic, and intelligent. Um, it, it will be mostly a lie, but it's still good for the algorithm thing. So have a go at that. Anyway, back to the hopefully more focused and probably better intentioned podcast. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Um, we have got a really interesting uh, question that was uh, posted to us over Twitter from Academics Right. And uh, it was, hey, Hurts Podcast, have you guys ever talked about salami slicing studies when it's bad and publication padding and when you have no choice? Um, we both responded to this kind of with, with, with a shrug. <laughs> we couldn't actually remember um, whether we've done this. Um, maybe we have done it in passing, but I don't yeah, think- Yeah, it feels like something that we, we sort of addressed in a flyby kind of fashion, you know? We might have given it a sort of a drive-by- is there anything that's not a drive-by shooting? Drive-by acknowledgements? Does that even work? Okay, let's not get mired in semantics, James. I don't think we've formally talked about it at any point in time. Yeah, so, okay. Right. Obviously, so, slime slicing is this idea that you get uh, you get an outcome, or you've done an experiment, and rather than actually reporting all your stuff in one paper, you go and slice up the salami and submit that as different publications. Um, it's, it's obviously got a, a lot of negative connotations uh, give, given the name. Um, so, wh- what, what are your thoughts of this? Oh, right. Just sort of generally. Just, 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 just generally. Just generally. Rip into that, rip into that in general. Um, I wonder how much this changes by field. Um, first of all, there's a very obvious regulatory mechanism for taking care of this in, in some, in some sense. It's a simple fact that if you are investigating a phenomenon and you write a very small paper on it and send it somewhere, then it will only really be well thought of in a lot of areas unless it's really fucking novel. Unless you're trying to get out there and be the first person to investigate the clever, interesting thing, right? So, in that sense, yeah, you wrote a you wrote a small paper with a small series of observations, but you might want to be you might want to be first to market. You might want to be claiming some kind of shit, as you know, this is my this is my academic territory. But it's also a signal to other people. I wish to talk about this. This is something that's been you know, developed here. It becomes a participant in a conversation. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you do that and it's not from a fascinating area, you run the very immediate risk of a reviewer going, Oi, are you there with a tiny fucking paper? Well, listen to me, Barry. Or listen to me. You've done bloody one experiment. And what we don't know is bloody experiments two, three, and four. So, go and get them and stick them on your paper. 
I don't know why the reviewer talks like that. I think just uh, in my mind, they sound like old judgmental Australian men. I guess that's who's annoyed me most demographically in my life. So, allegedly, that mechanism that already formally exists is for dealing with the idea that you make this thing that people call a minimum publishable unit. Yeah, it's a fucking loathsome phrase, but never mind. So, theoretically, it should already be dealt with, right? Except the fact that it's not really, obviously. Um, How much it happens seems to vary wildly by area. So, who was it? Oh, I can't remember. Someone had, uh, this was doing the rounds a, a while back. It was the best salami slicing example ever because someone had got some massive demographic data set from a bunch of different countries and wrote one paper for each individual country, except there were 37 countries or some shit. So, it was like XYZ, the theory of get stuffed up yours, country A. XYZ, the theory of get stuffed up yours, country B. And then I think they released all of them at the same time. And I think so there were 37 individual papers. Now, to get a journal to agree to do that, no sane editor who wasn't like trying to answer emails while being on fire and suffering from a massive prolapse and just clicking yes on everything <laughs> so they could get to the hospital, no sane editor is ever going to let that through. If that's happening, that's not an example of, ooh, the, the fucking the per- person writing the papers hoodwinked the journal, yeah? That's obviously some fucking self-dealing bullshit, right? Someone just- running Someone running that journal is someone involved in writing the paper or his best mate or his wife's brother or some shit- yeah, because I think it was a dude that was was doing the 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 the, the papers in those guys. I think the, the was a, a first author was a guy. Uh, I can't remember where he was from. And yeah, that's obviously a failure of editorial sanity more than it is a kind of you know he he sent thirty seven papers and all thirty seven were simultaneously accepted. It's some kind of dumbass deal. Um, you know, and if you care about metrics and you fucking shouldn't, but if you do, yeah, good luck trying to get all of those cited sufficiently to raise your H index, you fucking dildo. Well, I, you would have had, had a much less work and a much better chance of it being an important paper if you had aggregated them and now you're the laughing stock of the academic planet, you I think, massive spac. I think this really depends. Um, some fields actually value um, the volume of publications versus the actual quality of publications. What field would you say was contentious for doing that, Daniel? Uh, I don't know. I think it changes. I would say still t- to some degree within psychology, there would be this idea that more is better. Quite often you see these grant applications where the, the first sentence will be, Professor Fancy Pants is the author of 100 peer-reviewed publications. Yeah, look, that's got some weight. I think it's more common in some areas of medicine. Like? Um, I'm trying to think of one to single out, but I've seen well, quite what, a few. Why, why I, are you uh, thinking? I, 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 I wonder if it's a hangover from the idea that you're allowed to, like, case studies are fine. You can write up a case study and publish it. I know people have done that shit in a weekend. Apparently, it has clinical relevance. There's space for that in the in the world. You can write a short commentary, and if you're sufficiently senior, it'll go to a journal XYZ. I wonder if it's some kind of hangover from that. Oh, you know what? I've- uh, 
I don't want to. I don't want to impugn anyone's area off the top of my head. I mean, I'll impugn. I'll impugn tons of shit, but um, I'm struck with uncertainty. You don't remember the details of what? Um, yeah, the, 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 this uh, the exact details of the paper. But basically, what had happened was these researchers had um, just taken a basic blood panel, which has about you know twenty outcomes, um, looked at some and other- and the rest. Sorry. What a full blood panel! It's got a shitload. Well, I don't know. It was like a it was like a blood panel with like twenty or anyway. All right, yeah. And, okay. And so what they did was they they were looking at some sort of some sort of health variable. I don't know what it was, and then they they rather than actually reporting all the the relationships between these blood panel measures and uh, this variable, they actually sliced up and reported one variable per paper. And they weren't even they weren't even trying to be sneaky about it. The every paper had exactly the same title, except they just replaced the name of the blood variable, and they sent it out to different journals. And I think I think it got to seven before someone said, "Hang on a minute, these are <laughs> these people are being sketchy." And the worst part about that was um, they were they were they weren't very clear that this was part of the same experiment. And I think that oh okay, that's yeah. That then you're getting into a problem. But also imagine the work involved in simultaneously navigating all those submissions and revisions. Yeah, it's massive. Imagine it's 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 I, I mean you at that point in time you you're, you're largely giving it I mean it might take you to to do all this you know a submission can take about a day. Yeah, easy. With all the with all the stuff it's not simply a matter of bong this is well another reason I fucking love preprints. I love preprints so much. Clang paper, fuck you. Ah. Yeah, obviously that appeals to me. But then, you know, and good journal processes are ones that are easily navigable. It doesn't make them any shorter. It just means that everything's really explicit about where everything goes. A good journal management system simply uh, directs where you should put the mountains of superfluous crap and 400 forms, et cetera, et cetera, that say you're allowed to publish the thing. Or, or their journals that actually work with BioArchive and let you submit your BioArchive submission as the submission. Oh, uh, yeah. That's gold. I think oh, 20 journals now doing that. Bloody oh, yeah, uh, sensible. Good. Uh, yeah, it's, it's be- that's beautiful. El- Elsevier, uh, for, for all, their, all their manifest complaints and the fact that European countries seem to be divesting themselves from the enterprise completely, which is a, a, a cause of, uh, I hope, the cause of some consternation and reflection amongst the people who are sitting in their enormous trough of money somewhere. Um, but to their credit, they have a submit however the fuck you like policy that I encountered yeah. recently because That's- we were commissioned. I would not generally choose this journal, but it was a commissioned article for a special issue, which I wrote myself. And it was much, much easier than I was expecting it to be. Um, anyway, we don't want to get off track. We need to continue the discussion of charcuterie. <laughs> continue. So, I think quite often, um, I think that people are often too quick to jump on the accusation of salami slicing, Um, especially, I think, especially with studies that were incredibly uh, expensive to run, um, worked with very rare populations. Um, I think you're almost doing your participants a disservice if you're not actually getting as much as you can out of the data. And when I say that- Well, course, as much as you can yeah, I was about, in I was about terms of that. the amount of words put in different bins in different places, if, if you had the freedom to be able to write a more comprehensive single paper rather than a word limit, 
or mm. a problem with a focus or a journal being chintzy about redact this part. It's not relevant to our readership. People might be a little bit more willing to get the massive paper. There's plenty of people who've made their careers on the back of the massive paper. I think that's yeah? that seems to be the way. Um, I've actually noticed a shift, at least within psychiatry over the past few years, um, where a lot of the major journals are now really pushing the massive paper. And okay, you found this in this data set. Go go look at one of the go look at one of the open data sets and see if you can replicate this. Just add more stuff seems to be the mantra, um, which is good because it means that they're they're opening up their word limits. Um, but it's making uh, it, it means it means a lot more work. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's obviously a, a word a word limit uh, li- limitation as well. But I think a lot of people are, are too early to jump on the accusation of slimy slicing, and I don't see too much of a problem with it as long as you're actually transparent and straightforward. With yes. We have used this data set before. These are the outcomes. This is what we found. Um, and what we're reporting here is an exploratory analysis of the data. I think that's that's in almost all cases, I reckon that's totally fine. All right. So there's two elements here. One is the deliberate gaming of the system to produce multiple publications to make yourself look good versus the desire to make a comprehensive single document. The other is pretending that they're separate pieces of achievable output where you're kind of misrepresenting what's gone into it in the first place. So there's those two aspects of it. I think you're saying you don't have much of a problem with the first, but you have a very substantial problem with the second. Mm. And I think on the, on this topic of, of multiple publications, I've seen a few people on Twitter mention that it's almost now a bad thing that they actually look upon if someone's CV has a lot of publications, they actually look upon that with suspicion. Um, and it seems to be this. Um, I, I saw this idea proposed um, a few weeks ago. I don't know if it's a new idea, but it's this idea of the cumulative impact factor. Um, yes, I know there are problems with impact factors, and l- l- let's just put that aside for a moment. But this idea with the cumulative impact factor is that if you want to benchmark your success as a researcher, rather than actually counting the number of publications that you have, um, which within, for instance, within neuroscience, um, that can be wildly inflated. Um, you, you can be author number 40 just by rocking up to a meeting and, and saying hi to someone. And um, so, actually saying I've got 20 publications in some areas of science doesn't mean much um, because if you're 40th author and didn't do much, like, you know, what's your contribution? Um Hmm. But, um, well, the grant grant agencies have embraced some version of that by saying things like, "I wish to see your most appropriate publications, maximum three, yeah, within that- the area that you are justifying what you've actually done." Now, if you're applying for money on a maximum three basis, <laughs> and you you're the complete dickhead who's doing the. Uh, uh, the, the theory of something in a river up a creek, um, country A. The theory of something in a river up a creek, country you're, B. You're toast, you should, mate. You should, probably, you should probably keep those the fuck out of your requests for money to demonstrate your, uh, your colossal massive achievement, etc. I mean, you're just making a number. And I think you have to have a very blinkered view of how... M- People are going to evaluate your metrics if that's what you're doing because anyone who's not a complete imbecile will look at your publication record, even in brief, for anything. 
You want a job? Shit, they might even go and read the actual papers if they're doing due diligence. If you want a grant, they'll probably review at least, and maybe they'll just read the abstract, but they'll probably review some of the stuff that you send them, right? If you want a special award from a fancy society, they will carefully consider the quality of the publications that you're doing the thing for. So, all you're really doing at some point in time, there's a kind of a masturbatory element of I'm increasing my number of things. And yeah, look, it's on the same continuum as the kind of a, I published a review in journal A and then I rewrote 80% of it and added a few words uh, about how people can occasionally be young and then published it in journal B with a focus on children. There's a point to which you're not fooling anyone and you're going to shit your own bed. Well, this- Honestly. This um this cumulative impact factor um idea is actually interesting because what it does is it um it only you only add up the um the publications that you were first or last author on, um only empirical stuff, um and if you were second author or if you've written a review paper, then you basically dock those papers. You only get twenty five percent of the impact factor, and these people were proposing it of looking at it as a benchmark in that you look at the people who have won the the award or the job that you're going for tally up their cumulative impact factor and you can actually see, okay, um, apparently for this particular blog post, which I'll post to the show notes, they were saying that to get a, to get a fancy, to get a, a tenure-track position at a fancy university, you need a cumulative impact factor of 60. So, that's basically six publications, six high-impact publications um, or maybe 12 sort of lesser ones, so to speak. Um, and then anything that your third author on doesn't count. If you write a lot of reviews- um, and uh, even if they're in high-impact papers, um, high-impact journals, sorry, it doesn't count as much. Um, so, it, it was kind of interesting in that regard. But this idea- You're of- trying to- Yeah, look, I see you're trying to retrofit a shit metric into, into exactly. to doing other things. But I, I don't know if that is either a waste of time or represents some kind of incremental improvement without reading it. Um, well, it comes back to this idea of is volume versus- yeah. shite. Um, it's also very difficult. I mean, a lot of people who do a bunch of tech work, um, you can have incredibly important people who are, um, sort of, if you mean, it, it, that's, it's kind of a dicky thing if you're, if you're working in a small group of people and you did a big uh, chunk of the analysis or something that's a demonstrable impact and you're third author out of, in a four author paper. So, you, that, that didn't happen. A lot of people who do analysis or back other people up, you'll find they second author a lot, yeah? Like, the paper really wouldn't happen without her because she did all the PCRs for this because she runs that machine. That's her role here and she's good at it. We need her as a substantial contributor to this thing. But that, that you, and you put the onus back on the whole, like, I mean... The vast majority of my papers, I think, are first author papers. As I don't know how well that's the does not play well with others thing, or just the fact that has someone has someone ever mentioned that before? What that you don't have as many sort of second third authorships, so you don't play with other people. No, it's just generally the fact that um, because I had so much liberty to do whatever I wanted from the beginning of my career that. 
the vast majority of stuff I've worked on, I've been able to make decisions about. And if you consider the paper to be a learning process and you need something else, you don't go around roping other people in. You teach yourself to do it because it's an exercise in skill development. I'm still technically academically, Daniel, a young, young man. You are an early, as, early career researcher. As much as, as, much as I, uh, I'm just uh, dripping with the, the pointlessness and inanity of a, a dreadful old person. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't really keep that up. But most your of thoughts my, on most this, of my um, favorite academics are grumpy old people. This is some, I'm just blowing smoke here. But, but your thoughts uh, on this idea that you could that it, you, you can actually publish too much that you you know shit yeah yeah, yeah. you absolutely you absolutely can you absolutely can publish too much but if you're going to try and sum up what you oh, I'm going to sum up what my achievements are in brief you know and it, it doesn't because you just stuck your finger in in everything that you ever get your hands on. You gonna you go around and hit the sheets looking for other people's stuff to analyze and search yourself in other people's work processes. A lot of when when you're when you're a glad hander like that, it leaves clues. And they're not difficult to interpret cues. They're reasonably straightforward cues for people who know what they're looking for. I, I really I really think that. And you know, if it's just the thing, I was uh, we were talking about this yesterday. It's like, what does it mean if someone says they've got uh, there was six hundred and fifty publications? If you've got six hundred and fifty publications, and I don't think any of our listeners will, but listen to me very carefully. If you have, if you've got six hundred and fifty publications, um, I think most of them are bullshit. Or you didn't do especially anything. if you if you're an empirical scientist. I think either a you're farming which is where you get other people write to you and go, hey, will you append your mighty name to my humble work? Because we know it will get through review if your stupid fucking name is on it. That's farming. Um, that's bullshit. It's, a, it's an exercising influence trading. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you should be run over in the street. Um, either you're doing that or you're writing bullshit or you're continually recycling a shtick that you have over and over again to continually write review papers, or you might even be self-plagiarizing. We've not even fuck. I mean, you remember all this fuss about Robert Sternberg recently. I hate mm. to break it to you, but we've not even scratched the surface of, of people, especially in the social sciences, who love writing. I go, I found the special thing, and here I am describing it for the 27th time in a slightly different outlet. No one thinks you're cool. No one thinks everyone knows what you're about by now. You're just making you you are a scholastically minded person in in an area that's not doing real scholarship. You never got out of the academic mentality of being a student. You are stacking things up in order. You are collecting A's to impress the teacher. There is no teacher. There's only progress and you are a fucking barrier to it. I don't like you. I'm tired, aren't I? Jesus. Don't even have let's, the energy uh, to swear properly. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's wrap it up can't. the show. No, then. no, no, no. Do you have no, more no, stuff no. to say? Yeah, a little bit. A little right, bit. We've right. also, I mean, we're not we're not exactly done our time yet. You're trying to you're trying to rip people off here. No, because they're, they're paying it's so much for the show. Channel. Yes, I, I know. And there's, it's, it's, do you not feel a commitment to these people? Who are, there's, there's someone right now listening to this, sitting on a train, working at a boring, uh, a boring analysis, waiting for something to compile. 
who demand that you continue to talk in a fashion that's interesting. Oh, I'm actually finger pointing at the, the thing. We should, <laughs> we should get video for this. At you some know, I obviously thought at the start, let, let's just make this a video episode. Let, let's do it for the next one. Post it on the uh, Everything Hurts YouTube page, which we have. Remember that? Yeah, I think we're 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 over, we're overdue for a bit of vodcast. Vod- that'd be, I reckon that'd we should, be, we should be bring, good fun. bring back the vodcasting. Maybe maybe even do it live. Um, that, that kind of kind of worked last time, sort of. Uh, it was well. See, Daniel, like everything, is one of these processes. Obviously, we need practice. Yeah, <laughs> you can't just click your fingers. I mean, you were talking about have good having good vocal presence, and you and I have both have occasionally been critical about the quality of other people's podcasts. Well, I think it would be fair to say that anyone who did video for a living could be very cr- critical of the quality of our first video podcast, Ex- which, if I remember, at, at about an hour and 40 minutes devolves more or less entirely into me muttering. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was almost two hours and people listened to the whole thing. So, um, that's awesome. With, with we, you are, yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's a genuine commitment. So, someone someone I mean, sat down to look at, a, to look at a screen. I can sort of understand that if you're listening on headphones. But, yeah, we know there's a lot of people who um, listen while, while they're doing doing their analysis, doing doing their psychophysics thing for the for the 200th time, 200th trial. Um, walking so, the dog. Walking the We've dog. We've got a lot of dog walkers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd love to have a dog. You're very lucky. I had a dog here. A, the cat would kill it, and B, it would be a one-bedroom apartment disaster nightmare combo. And I'm very jealous because there's people down the street who have a Sheba. Oh, the, it's the a, dog. It's adorable. It's got a little curly tail. Oh, it's like a little hairy pig. I love their dog. I don't know where they live, so I can't steal it, so don't call the police. <laughs> No, I do have one other thing to say about salami slicing, Daniel. Okay. Well, if any, um, if any listeners- you, ha- well, Any listeners what? Have any, have, have any thoughts about um, salami slicing? Um, l- let us know. Sure. Uh, here's- You, like me, and a lot of people who hear this, are privy to a lot of academic conversations where people sit around and talk by themselves. Have you heard academics sitting around- talking shit about other people's publication practices when it comes to something like this. Salami slicing? Yeah. 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 All the time. So, right. So, what I think we can probably both confidently say is people are definitely back-channeling the shit to each other. It's not disappearing into the ether to make your special number look good. People are noticing and they're talking to each other about how you are trying to make progress within a system by doing something that's that's bullshit and it's especially is that, is, yeah and it's especially worse when um when people are being disingenuous about the fact that it's from the same trial i'll always call people out when i review papers and people are like oh we did this thing and i'm like mate this seems a heck of a lot familiar than your last study that i looked up thank you very much <laughs> um i don't think it's a coincidence that the the age means and standard deviations are exactly the same what is going on. And I thought, oh, man, peep- uh, he- he- here's my rant for the day. People think that reviewers are stupid and not going to check up on stuff. I reviewed a paper where they said, um, yeah, we-, we-, we pre-registered this this meta-analysis protocol. Um, and I looked at it and there was not very much that actually matched up between the two things. Like, they've literally put a public document out there just that, that everyone can see. And they're saying that we've done the same thing. And, and it wasn't the same. So, 
yeah, re- maybe you'll get past some lazy reviewers, but um, even if you do get past the reviewers, if it actually gets published, then people are going to people are going to see um, black and white that you didn't do the thing that you said that you did. There's also something else that we we haven't talked about. We were thinking about splitting an individual period of data collection into uh, a variety of papers. There's something else that uh, I noticed a while back that's reasonably common as well. You have a series of experiments that measure something. You take an aggregate and you assess the you uh, assess some collective quality between the experiments on the aggregate. And you publish that, let's say, uh, four studies and you give everyone the same questionnaire and you match it up to some bullshit, right? And then you do two more studies and then you write one that's slightly different but essentially the same and you report it as being six studies. Mm. Now, that's not salami slicing in the traditional sense, but it is, however bullshit and if you don't explicitly identify the fact that you know this is in in a in the broadest material sense two-thirds similar to the thing that i already published i'm just sort of updating it then you are trying to fucking put one over people people notice you yeah it's really obvious because the other thing is of course you're going to cite your own fucking paper like in our previous work where we proved this, but you can't use that language. You can't say in our previous work when your current work is in a very real and central sense part of the previous work. You unbelievable flaming dildo. Do you think people will not notice that? You're absolutely right. I, th- I think there's, there's, there's a weird part of like publication culture stuff where there is an assumption that because you can just keep going until you get a reviewer who's a dopey fuck, right? That you might as well just sort of try it on. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The gaming of the review pro, I mean, more than the fact that, oh, there's tremendous paper inflation. People are doing too much. There's an awful lot of reviewing goes on for the stuff that actually gets spiked. That's the thing that uses people's time. And I think that's the thing that causes resentment. That and editors who send out things that should never, ever be sent out in the first place. Um, but I would, that is very secondary to the fact that people treat the, like, like, they come with this kind of fucking Nash equilibrium perspective to the review process. And the fact that that mindset is regarded as strategic or okay is, is one of the central factors for why either of those, like, salami slicing in the traditional sense, or the broaden and build theory of publication. <laughs> uh, only some people will get that one. Um, <laughs> but both of these, both of these are for uh, both of these are in the in the the worst sense, in the in the in the, the the sense that we mean, where it's actively dishonest. Both of these are the activity of dodgy fuckers, and you're making people come around to having to find that out because they have their suspicions, which means you're literally wasting people's time. Time they don't have, right? Time that they could be spent spending doing their own work, you know? And that is not that is not a collegial activity. You are not being a colleague at that point. There's an element of parasitism to that, you know? Like there's so much of this around, I'm going to go and get some of it because I feel like I need it. It's a very kind of weird sort of like a, 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 a corporatist 
perspective on publishing. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna choose some of it off and keep it over there. You you you're thinking of it in in sort of finite terms. You're trying to chisel a piece off it and keep it. And I don't think anything I can say will make anyone stop. And I sincerely doubt the people who think that this is a super cool idea for getting ahead in the great big wide world. I don't think a lot of those people are going to be listening to this. Um, so I'm not going to say much in the way of insulting them. I just hit a, a bunch of people. I'm be very sorry about that. And I, frankly, I don't know if I've got the energy to lose my temper right now. But yeah. look, su- suffice to say, suffice to say, um, we see you. Those of us who read carefully, who are going to do this, we see you. We know your fucking tricks. And here's the thing. If you piss your reviewers off by doing things that are dodgy and you work in a reasonably small area, the worm will come back around. Yeah? The sun will rise, the sun will set, the sun will rise again. And who will be reviewing your paper again with the preconception of, oh, it's that dodgy fucker. It will probably be Dan, frankly. So I would, I, I honestly say, I would never try to bullshit you purely for my own selfish personal reasons. Do you know what I mean by that? I think it's a shit strategic move as well as a shit thing to do. Mm. I know that I know that cut out for a second because uh, otherwise you would have said something like, oh, it might be the nicest thing you've said to me today, but instead. <laughs> Yeah, so you can you can always tell in these when we we uh you can always tell when something drops out a little. Is Dan's response is slightly more muted than it might otherwise be. Well, uh, now we can stop. Let let's wrap up for today. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and uh, we're gonna be back. Thank again. you for listening. Thank you for listening. Rest assured, we love you. Um, Dan loves you a great deal. So he's does James. Tat- he's tattooed all of your names on his inner thigh. Um, they all, had, all the they full had to write- they had to write particularly small because there's just so many of you now. Yeah. But together, together we are ascendant and powerful. We will form an army and crush the unbelievers. I've been listening to a lot of traditional metal recently. <laughs> See you later, everyone. Toodles. <laughs>